Welcome to the Wagging Tail Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk to both professionals and owners of our companion animals so that we can learn from their stories or their tales and we can do better for our companion animals. I'm your host, Fraser Noble, Behavioural Specialist at Noble Canine. I'm Jay Quick. I'm a dog trainer with Noble Canine as well. This is episode five. Now, on this episode, it's just going to be Jay and myself, and we're going to be talking about training methodologies. It is a huge, hot topic. Now, with that in mind, we are going to be talking about this from a science-based as well as our own point of view. But what we are going to make sure we do is everything we reference is going to have links in the show notes. So... We're not talking about anecdotal evidence. We're not talking about our personal experiences and things like that. We are speaking about what we have actually learned through doing our academic studies or certifications and professional development. So please, if you disagree with what we are talking about, that's fine. That's great. Please feel free to comment with respect, but also make a point to go into the show notes and look at the links where we actually have the studies talking about what we are discussing on this episode. So, without further ado, we're going to speak about what training actually means. Jay, what do you reckon training actually means? Before I started getting into, you know, being a dog trainer and everything like that, I, as a kid, right, I grew up with dogs, cats, and whatever animals you could think of at home. It just kind of seem like I always just tell the dogs to do this. And if they don't do it, I physically kind of like push their bodies to doing something like a sit or a stay. And that was training to me growing up. So that's a very old fashioned way of doing it. But when we're talking about this, we've got to think, what do people actually want out of their training? Does it mean that they want their dogs just to be obedient? What you're talking about there is... I want my dog to do what I am saying. And that was all, really. Yeah. Back then, it was yeah. dog training that wasn't as advanced as it is now. What dog training actually means, to me at least, to make sure that we've got safety within the household and when we're outside. So, for example, with us in our house, we've got three dogs and a toddler. So it's, it's really important for me that... Uh, the dogs are trained to understand what's appropriate and what's not. But at the same time, the bond that I have with the dogs and the bond that my family have with the dogs and vice versa is very important. And if you're keeping a companion animal, in my personal view, if the animal's not happy and doesn't enjoy life, you're what's not the point, really, right? Yeah, what's the point? You know? <laughs> One thing I've realized as well is like, um, clients who come to me and then they usually have like some sort of behavioral issue with their dog, right? Maybe it's aggression, maybe it's fear, maybe it's reactivity. There's a lot of things. And all they want is to just fix that as their goal. But as they go through the training and they put in the effort with it, they start to see all the improvements with their dog. They start to have more goals. They start to see like, oh, you know what? That, that wasn't so bad. I actually want my dog to, let's say, I don't know, learn how to run with me in, in the park and or I want my dog to go for agility courses and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that I feel boils down to the fact that people think it's a case of problem, fix that individual problem. Yeah. And they don't realise that, you know, just like humans, dogs learn in different ways. So you can't just say, right, I'm going to fix this exact problem. You've got to understand more about your individual dog and that's how you need to approach it and when you're doing that you end up seeing the potential in your dog mm-hmm. and with that you can do a lot more with them it's actually it's a really nice thing to experience when you see people going through that journey yeah it is it's it's just same for for dogs and humans right um dogs require different things as well i think before we go on it's important that we speak about some basic knowledge which is required to understand what training methods are because people have got a very obscure 
thinking on what different training methods are. They kind of make it political. And I yeah. think that's wrong because yeah. it should be about the dogs. It shouldn't be about, oh, I want to do this because I'm right wing or left wing, or I want to do this because I support this celebrity over that celebrity. For me, that's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I really feel people should know about is your likes of classical conditioning and your operant conditioning. And once you've got that, you know, it's much easier to understand what we're talking about. Okay, so for classical conditioning, we have the standard, you know, Pavlovian dogs. When the experiment was conducted, it was him ringing a bell right before feeding time. So the dog started to automatically associate the sound of the bell to getting food. Eventually, when this was done over some time, whenever he rang the bell, the dogs would start to begin to uh, drool, even if there was no food present. So Pavlov was able to get his dogs to react to the stimulus that had not previously reacted to. So examples of this would be a dog barks when they hear the doorbell because they have learned that you know a doorbell means someone's at the door. A stranger could be happy, could be fearful, could be territorial, whichever. The reaction is still the dog barking. Or when, let's say, you always put on a hat, a cap before bringing your dog, dog out. So whenever you put on the cap, the dog gets excited and it starts jumping around because they know that they're going to be brought out for a walk. And there's human examples of this as well. I mean, one that's slightly darker, but it, it really triggers how important classical conditioning actually is because it's not a voluntary reaction. Like when you're talking about the dog barking at the doorbell, it's not the dog making a conscious decision. Oh, the doorbell's there, therefore I'm going to bark. It can be a subconscious reaction to that external stimulus. So people that are suffering from PTSD, if they hear like a loud crash or bang or, you know, fireworks, depending on where their PTSD came from, it could trigger that subconscious association with a car crash or having been in battle or whatever created the PTSD. That in itself is classical conditioning. So it's important to understand that, yes, we can use classical conditioning for good during training, but also it can be a negative thing for people and dogs alike. And understanding where that comes from means that we are able to unravel it a little bit easier just from having that knowledge. Then we look at the likes of operant conditioning. Now, this one basically deals with either encouraging or discouraging certain actions or behaviour. This basically revolves around giving the animal choices, whereas classical condition revolves around an involuntary association. But we need to be very clear before we talk about this. When we say positive, it means the addition of a stimulus. And when we say negative, it means the subtraction of a stimulus. So for the first one we have is positive reinforcement, right? You probably hear that a lot. You can open up your Google page and just search for dog training, positive reinforcement pops up. So what is it? It's actually adding something good. You're rewarding your dog for a behavior that you desire or you're asking for, such as giving a treat for lying down quietly while you work at home. A lot of clients, they or a lot of people in general, they don't realize how important this is because to them, it seems like I'm just rewarding my dog for doing nothing. But sometimes nothing is what's wanted because they're not overreacting. They're not negatively reacting, which is something that you don't want either. Or you grab out a rope toy to play with your dog when someone's at the door. So your dog's engaged in play, which is the reward, instead of running up to, the, to your front door and barking at whoever's at the door. I mean, and then you've got negative punishment. This is an interesting one because negative punishment is not necessarily just a punishment. It's also a learning opportunity. So remember that negative means the removal, the, the subtraction of a stimulus. This is really considered the second most effective form of operant conditioning after positive reinforcement. If you've got a puppy and your puppy starts biting you because they're teething, of course, we understand it's because they're teething, but we don't necessarily want to allow that to continue. So you would remove yourself from the situation, effectively showing your puppy that biting means that 
you are no longer engaged with your puppy. Now, as social animals, one of the biggest forms of punishment would be to remove that attention. Same as like your dog jumps up on you when you come in the door, ignoring them completely until they calm down. Or if a dog's getting overexcited and playing inappropriately with other dogs, effectively, if you remove that dog from the situation, you're saying you've lost access to that play. The goal here isn't to just punish your dog, but it also kind of puts them into a position where they have to try an alternative behaviour that hopefully will be one that you desire. You can think about this like um, the silent treatment that our wonderful wives uh, might sometimes put onto us. <laughs> if we've done something wrong, you might not get the attention of a conversation. Now, as much as some guys will say, oh, yeah, that's great. It means I get some quiet time. If they're truly honest with themselves, that's not really how their brain is, uh, you know, taking that. And it's also similar to being told to go and sleep on the sofa, if that ever happens. Now, for the record, never happens to me, but it is also negative punishment. So that leads us on to the next form of punishment, which is positive punishment. Yeah. So positive punishment is something that we don't use, but I've seen I've seen um, examples of it, and I see why people want to use it because on videos, if someone wants to make content, they have to show quick results, right? They have to show the problem and then they fix it. So positive punishment does that, but it's short term. Positive punishment is things like using electric collars, prong collars. You hit your dog, you shout or you scold your dog. Or sometimes people use like spray bottles. But the reason why this isn't the best and it's mostly rejected by a lot of uh, animal behavior specialists and cognition sciences is that it has a lot of short-term results. And, and the potential to backfire is really high compared to the two things that we discussed previously. So when we say short-term results, I think it's important to truly understand that. Um, you can get the results from the individual handler. But just because you've used fear or discomfort to stop a dog from behaving in a certain way, because effectively when you're doing this, you're suppressing a behavior. Right, what right. ends up happening is that animal will only behave in that way with the person who has inflicted that discomfort or fear. Yeah. And then when somebody else is trying to handle them, it, it reverts back to what it mm -hmm. is or... If you've suppressed a behavior so badly, you've just suppressed it. You've not changed anything. The root cause is still there. Whether the root cause is overexcitement, yeah. prey drive, anxiety, fear-based, whatever, mm -hmm. that still exists. So there will be a different behavior that will pop up. And that can make it very dangerous as well because you don't know what that behavior is going to be. By using this form of operant training, uh, operant conditioning, your dog doesn't really get the chance to build the trust with you, you can severely damage the relationship you have with your dog as well. And by enforcing any sort of, of things that we just previously discussed, it, it's shown to increase the stress levels of your dog as well. Not only of your dog, of yourself as well. And if you're more stressed, your dog gets stressed as well. It's just a never-ending terrible cycle. Uh, some dogs have been shown to be more aggressive out of fear from applying things like, you know, your electric collars and stuff like that. And the worst thing of all is that you could actually injure your dog. I've seen dogs that started limping from being hit by owners and stuff like that. So that's just not helpful to the dog or yourself. And although, of course, we'll not mention any organizations or names or anything like that, we've, uh, we've worked personally with dogs who have seen other trainers and that dog has had serious injuries like broken ribs or Oof. fractured legs and things like that and then of course the behavioral outfall of that is severe and it takes a lot more to bring that dog back just because we're talking in the same breath about people that are using electrical shocks or beating or hitting their dogs as people that are maybe scolding their dog or using a spray bottle or you know using something like a can filled with coins though that's all technically positive punishment. I'm not saying that all people that use positive punishment are animal abusers. What I am saying is that 
the science is showing that positive punishment in general, whether it be scolding or all the way up to electrocution, it is not a very effective way of teaching. Although you might get the short-term results, the dog hasn't learned or the animal hasn't learned what the alternative behaviour is. It's just suppression. So I just wanted to make that clear before we moved on to negative reinforcement. Just to add on as well, if you yell or you scold your dog, right, and then they stop the behaviour, suddenly they have another behaviour that you want to suppress or you want to stop. You have to increase that level of either your volume or something like that to make it more clear to them, as you think. But it's just slowly adding on more and more and more. And then eventually you start hitting your dog. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a terrible slope to go down, you know. Well, that's actually a very good point, yes. I mean, you've got to escalate the discomfort and fear for that to continually work. So moving on to negative reinforcement, Basically, negative reinforcement is removing an unpleasant stimulus. The desired action is basically what triggers that. So basically, an example of that would be, and these are ones that I've actually seen people using, is pinching a dog's ear until they stop barking. And when they stop barking, they let go. So the pain of that pinch is being released, and that's it being removed when the dog does what is desired or pinning a dog down until they stop growling, effectively pinning them down until the dog gives up or even electrical fences. And you see people using them all the time, especially in places where you've got more land. That's basically electrocuting the dog until they come back to the land that they're allowed to be in. There's some horrific stories about that one, but effectively with what Jay just mentioned there about having to continually escalate the discomfort before it has an impact. An impact. When I was growing up, there was a, a family that had two Japanese Akitas, beautiful big dogs. But these dogs had realised that every time they went through the fence, they would be electrocuted. Then they realised that it wasn't that bad. And the family, not wanting to seriously hurt their dogs, didn't up the discomfort or fear. So eventually the dogs just became desensitized to that electric shock and also understanding that eventually it would stop if they get far enough away from the fence or if the collar runs out of batteries. And one night these dogs escaped and effectively got into a sheep's field and destroyed half the flock. And uh, no surprises in the early 90s, these dogs then were put down by the farmer. When you look at the actual studies and the actual science behind it, they're not actually educating. You're not actually training the animal. You're suppressing behavior, which means that when there's one falter or one aspect which isn't followed to make it work, it can have disastrous consequences on top of all of the backfire that you can get just from using them. Now, that's us just talking about the required knowledge. What I'd like to do now is just talk about the types of training. So there's four main types of training, although really, if you want to get into it, there's multiple. I mean, so you hear some people talking about 18 types, 12 types, eight types. To be honest, even the four types could be boiled down into two or three. But bear with us here, just because the reason I've separated these into four is so that I can kind of explain the training methodologies. So the four main types of training are one, aversive training, two, positive training, three, relationship-based training, and four, science-based training. Now, some people will have heard me talking about those four. And thought, well, you didn't mention balanced trainers or positive trainers or behavioral science-based trainers. And that's because the types of training is not really the same as the types of trainers. And even with that, if you have a good positive trainer, that's very, very different from a bad positive trainer. And I mean that just from their ability to coach. 
their ability to actually use the methodology. If you've got somebody who's teaching a client poor timing versus somebody who's got perfect timing, that's where you get the difference between somebody saying, oh, this method really worked for me and somebody saying, this method didn't work for me at all. It might be the quality of the trainer, not just the actual methodology. But with that said, when you look at the likes of balanced trainers, now a balanced trainer is effectively using aversive training and positive training. And the idea behind that is that they balance both sides. And then you get positive trainers, who many of whom just use basic positive training, some of whom will use positive training and relationship-based training, and some of whom will use positive training, relationship-based training, and science-based training. So that's why I've separated positive relationship and science-based, because although we use all three positive relationship and science-based, not every positive trainer does. And that's kind of where I'm getting at with using different methodologies as well as the ability to coach and things along those lines. So let's just look at the first one, Jay, alpha dominance-based dog training. I mean, if, if you guys have been following us, I posted a video a couple of weeks back, was it? That was on being the alpha to your dog and how it's very commonly misunderstood. Being A lot of people think that being the alpha or being the dominant one with your dog is that I have to make sure that my dog listens to me. They, they have to always look to me if they want to do anything, basically always seeking permission. But in the same way for humans is that if you have a terrible leader, you're going to start questioning your leader because your leader is not giving you the right information, not giving you the right rewards or room to grow even. So for alpha dominance dog training, it, heavily relies on positive punishment. Positive punishment. <laughs> i try to say that three times. Alpha-based training also requires setting a lot of ground rules. Like you always have your dog following two steps behind you or your dog is only allowed to eat after you've, you're done eating yourself. So on top of that, the alpha dominance dog training methods are basically modeled on pack behavior amongst wolves, which was originally done in 1947 by a man named Rudolf Schneckel. Now, he did a paper called The Expression Studies on Wolves. Now, one of the big things you've got to realise about this is that that study was done in 1947 for a start. So the surrounding knowledge on canines in general was a lot less than it is today. But on top of that, this study was done in a zoo. This study was not done by observing wild wolves. It was done by captive wolves in a zoo. Captive wolves in a zoo who did not come from the same area or pack. So you've got a bunch of animals who don't come from the same area, who don't come from the same packs. They were just captured and all put into a cage, effectively. And then they studied that behaviour and set a full wave of dog training history based on that which is wild because if you put any animal from a different areas and different families into a enclosure you're going to get very poor representations of what their behavior is actually like now then we've got the next man who in 1970 wrote about the alpha wolf and this was dr david meck the most amazing thing about dr david meck is this he was a scientist, and although he did that study and he spoke about the alpha wolf, and he's the one that talks about the alpha, he's the one that made that famous, but that same scientist, this same wildlife biologist, later on renounced his own study, pointed out all of the flaws in his own study, and openly speaks about how he regrets that his initial book continues to be published. Now, if that in itself doesn't tell you a little bit about that methodology, I don't know what will. One of the things that was highlighted um, after the fact, after they realised about Alpha being incorrect with this representation, is that even within a wolf pack, wild wolves, it's been shown that they actually live in family units. The Alpha is basically the parents or the grandparents. There's no real dominance competition amongst the family units. And again, please go into the show notes and take a look at Dr. Meck's book and his 
his attempt to pull it back off the shelves. All of this is in there. And as Jay said, there's nothing wrong with being a leader to your dog. We're not saying you can't be a leader. It's saying that you've got to be an appropriate leader. Being a leader is not being an alpha or a boss. It's being a good leader. And a good leader is always going to be calm and consistent and confident and clear with what they're wanting you to do. If you think about any of the bosses you've had in your career, the moment you have any of them trying to be dominant or aggressive towards you, you instantly lose respect for them and you'll do the bare minimum. But if you've got a good leader, somebody that gives you that opportunity, somebody that's always confident and clear in what they're expecting, you tend to go over and above when it comes to following them. Now, I know we've gone on about that one quite heavily, but it's uh, it's one of these big contention points amongst dog training and people's understanding. So now we'll go on to another one, which there's a massive misconception of, but also is very quickly gaining a lot of proper understanding and popularity, and that's positive reinforcement training. So for positive reinforcement training, we use mainly shaping and luring. By doing this, you're actually setting your dog up for success. When you train your dog to sit at home, make the decision to sit at home. Can they do it while they're in the lift with another stranger in the lift? Can they do it while they're outside or they're at a dog run playing with another dog? You have to slowly build up every step of the way. You can't expect your dog to be able to sit at home and then suddenly sit while there's three dogs running around them. It might not work that way. So for this form of training, we use markers. There are primary and secondary markers. So primary markers are things that are innate for dogs, which is food, affection, and play. And then for secondary markers, which are only learned, are things like your verbal markers or clicker training. Now, these forms of positive reinforcement trainings are being used in our current day working dogs and military and police dogs as well. The Metropolitan Police in the UK have started using positive reinforcement, uh, certain units in the NYPD as well. And if you've seen the show Dogs Might Fly, which is by Victoria Stilwell, she actually taught a dog the controls of a plane using positive reinforcement training. Because there used to be an argument where people said, oh, positive reinforcement training is great for puppies and easy dogs, but you can't do complex tasks. But that's actually wrong. And then they were saying that you can't do it with aggressive dogs. But when you realise that aggression comes from a place of fear, actually positive reinforcement is the most effective way to deal with aggressive dogs. You just need to also make sure that your management is very much on point when you're doing it. So this next part here, when we speak about relationship-based dog training, this one's quite interesting because a lot of people don't consider relationship based training different from positive training. But because a lot of people don't even think about this within positive training, including a lot of trainers, I felt that it was important that we uh, separate it. This is also a very important aspect when you're dealing with a dog that has fear or like a skittish dog. Um, This is where we focus on the bond. I always like to put this into the perspective of a relationship bank account. And you can look at this within any relationship, whether it be a friendship, a marriage, whatever. But for the sake of dogs, I use this as well. Effectively, you always want your bank account to be in the black. You always want to have enough money in there so that when something bad happens, you're not that badly impacted. You've still got enough in there that you're not panicking about not having enough money. This is the same for the relationship. If you've got... $100 in that bank account, and then you've got to go to the doctor or the vet if you want to keep it to dogs. That's not going to go very far. Okay, so you're going to end up having to go into debt, which means that you're then in a very dangerous place when it comes to your bank account. Your relationship's no different. If you don't put that much good into that relationship and then something bad happens, Like you've got to take your dog to the vet and there's a lot of discomfort, there's a lot of pain, there's fear. If your relationship is not strong enough or you don't have enough in there, as it were, you'll end up in overdraft, you'll end up in debt. And then that's when you can get some really dangerous actions or behavioral traits on the side of your dog. Whereas 
if you've got a very healthy relationship bank account, you've got millions in that bank account, going to the vet's not going to really have that big an impact. When your dog's feeling that fear and discomfort and even pain, they're still going to look to you for trust. They're still going to look to you for, for comfort. For the relationship bank account, Understanding your dog as an individual, like Frazier said, is very important here because different dogs see different values and amounts, right? Let's say with my first um, adopted dog, Blue, right? If I brought her to the vet right now, it's probably just a withdrawal of $50 in, in terms of the relationship bank account we have. But if your dog has negative experiences with even the groomers or the vet, whatever, and you bring them there, it might be a withdrawal of like $5,000, but you don't get to decide how much your dog sees the value in that or the negative value in that. And that's a very important aspect of relationship-based training. But it's more than that. It's also about ensuring that your dog wants to comply with you. They want to do what you're asking. And I'm not talking about a trauma-bonded dog. I'm not talking about a dog that's made this a habit because if they don't do it, they get scolded or hit or whatever else. I'm talking about the dog actually wanting to do it for you. And that is where this becomes very, very important as well. The other great thing about this is that it's the lowest stress level of training because it's all about using gamification and ensuring that your dog wants to be doing what you're doing. In fact, a lot of the time, this is just like a game and you're mixing positive training with relationship training. It's very much just playing games with your dog, which is just fantastic. The other thing that's really important about it is that you've got to understand your dog as an individual dog. So you've got to look at not just your bond with the dog, your relationship with the dog, but also do you know what your dog's been through? Now, obviously, with a lot of the rescue cases, we don't know exactly, but we can have a basic understanding of what that learned behavior might have. Then you've got what sort of social behavior has that dog learned? Have they, have they learned to be skittish because of the social environment they were in with other dogs? Or have they learned to be confrontational because of the way other dogs were around them or indeed the way people were? And then you've got genetics, which don't worry, I will not go down the rabbit hole too deep on this. But it's massively fascinating. And effectively, what our dogs have been bred to do does have an impact on their behaviour. Now, before anybody gets all up in arms and talks about the nature versus nurture, these are all interconnected. These three sections of learned behaviour, social behaviour and genetics, they're all linked. So there's no nature versus nurture behaviour of an animal is shaped through nature and nurture. So it's up to the individual situation that actually shapes this. But understanding that for your dog does make this a lot more effective. And of course, being able to read your dog. If, you've, if you learn a little bit more about body language and calming signals, you're able to identify when your dog is stressed and needs help and when they're feeling confident and playful and indeed it helps you understand what they're actually looking for from you. But again, like positive training, this is always about making sure that you're setting your dog up for success. So when you're working with this, whether it be setting up a training scenario like Jay was talking about earlier, or setting up a behavioral scenario to ensure that your dog's going to make the correct decision or to encourage your dog to make the correct decision, you've got to do everything you can so that you don't obstruct the success. So you've got to look at triple D, as we call it, distractions, distance, and duration. So is there too many distractions around for the dog to be successful? Change it. Are you too far away or are you too close, depending on what you're trying to achieve? And have you been at it too long, duration? If you've been trying to do something for too long, then obviously your dog's going to lose interest. It'd be like us trying to do like a triple period of maths when we were at high school I don't know about you guys but if that was me I would switch off very quickly so it's about setting them up for success and of course understanding if there's any medical conditions or physical injury or discomfort that's going to have a big impact on your dog's ability to learn and be successful at what you're trying to do and again not everybody considers relationship-based training distinct 
from positive training. But it's definitely worth separating just for even just for the clarity and the concept of what this actually is. Okay, so next we have science-based dog training. So science-based dog training seeks to utilize any form of evidence to achieve your desired result. So you have to always keep up to date. If your trainer is still using techniques and methods from the 1960s in current day, I suggest that you find another trainer because it's the same as you're going to the hospital and then you seek treatment that is only used in the 1960s for yourself as well. It's just not fair to the dog and to yourself. The study of dog cognition and learning is still relatively new to us and animal behaviors are learning more through new studies and experiments every day, every week, every hour even. Science-based training seeks to understand dogs and their ability to be conditioned. It evaluates the effectiveness of various rewards and punishments, even though science-based dog training is still new, but I would say that it is so fast in, in, in its advancements. Like uh, recently, uh, Frazier and I were talking about this one as well. The dogs don't actually see jealousy the way we perceived it. So the way we thought dogs see jealousy is like, okay, um, initially I thought Blue was jealous of my second dog, Ori, if I was giving her too much attention. So what would we do in that situation? We would be jealous. We would just go like, oh, you know what? I'm so jealous of, of all the attention that this person is getting. But the way dogs see it is that I'm jealous of the attention that Jay is giving Ori. You know what? I'm going to try and take the attention away. That's how they see it. They, they don't see it the same way that we do. So it's very important that trainers and behavioral specialists stay up to date on all of the science-based dog training because it is constantly evolving and changing. But it largely just means to your trainer or even yourself committing to following the most up-to-date and well-researched training methods available. Now, just touching on the jealousy one, um, yeah. that was actually brought to our attention because of the Dog Behaviour Conference. It's an annual conference mm -hmm. that's held by the VSA. Um, and it was very interesting. These conferences are brilliant. And in recent years... One of the good things that has come out of the COVID-19 epidemic is that they're not all in person. So you can be attending these conferences from anywhere in the world just using Zoom, which, to be honest, living in Singapore and most of the conferences being either in the UK or the US, it suits me down to the ground because it means that I'm not needing to try and organise my family holidays around, you know, behaviour conferences, which... We may have done in the past, much to my wife's dismay. Um, but it's very important that we do keep up to date with things like that. So with that said, I will share links as well to things like the the VSA Annual Behaviour Conference. Um, there's other ones as well. You know, Dr. Tom Mitchell has great programmes. He does giving the most up-to-date things. And there's a, there's a number of great people out there that do it. If I went through the list, it would just take too long. But... For anybody that's interested, please continue to study. Please continue to be involved in this because this is, I know most people could probably tell that this is where my passion sits, is the continual learning of animal cognition. And the more we know about animals, about not just dogs, but every animal, the more we can live with them, the more we can not just help them, but also have them help us. You know, like we, we, we've been using dogs, for example, for tens of thousands of years to help us, whether it be through hunting or shepherding or protection. And this just continues to get more and more and more to the stage where back in the day, you know, a police dog could only do three jobs because it was being taught through using, you know, dominance-based theory. And then when we started to understand a little bit more about canine cognition and how they learn and what we can do to have them learn. Now you've got dogs that are general purpose dogs that are able to do 13, 14, 15, 18 different jobs because the dog sees them as games, as tasks that they can do. So in one shift, you can have a dog that's taking out the bad guy and then looking after the old lady and, you know, all of these great behavioural shapings that we can do with these animals. And this is all down to science-based learning 
It's not about politics. It's about education. It's about understanding and knowing what we can do to continually improve ourselves and improve our relationship with our companion animals. Okay, so, so with all that said, how do you choose the right dog training approach? So you have to look at things like your needs and your desires and how much comfort you have in enforcing that particular method as well. Because if you don't believe in that method, it's not going to work, right? Because you, you have no motivation to, to use that form of dog training. Also, how much effort you're willing to put in for the dog training. So some people, they don't have so much time or they don't want to put in the effort. They just send their dogs to, you know, like a dog training school, a boarding school or something like that. Might cost more money, but if, you know, if, if that's what your needs or your desires are. There are a lot of drawbacks to that as well, but I won't touch on it right now. Next, we'll look at your dog's needs. What is actually going on with your dog? Does your dog have fear? Is your dog having panic attacks when they go for walks? If things like that are common with your dog, you should avoid alpha-based training because you can't fix fear with fear, as we've mentioned many times before. Anxious dogs may also be overwhelmed with larger groups, as some dog trainers or schools have. They might be better at smaller groups or even one-on-one -on -one private training. Is your dog always overexcited? Is your dog still a puppy? Um, is, the, is your dog a golden retriever or is your dog a pug or is your dog you know, a working lion German Shepherd? You have to look at all of these things as well before you consider what form of training you want. I think you also need to look at the resources that you've got yourselves. I mean, when we talk about commitment, this is something that a lot of people feel a little bit squirrely about because they say, oh, no, I'm committed, I'm committed. But commitment comes in sections of four. The first thing you've got is money. Are you willing to put in the money that's required to be committed to anything? I'm not just talking about dog training. You could be talking about your health and fitness. You could be talking about your career development. It's relevant to which one it is. Hey, you could be talking about dating. Are you willing to put in the money nope. to go on the date? Okay. <laughs> Are you willing to put in the time? Because if you're putting in the money, but you're not willing to put in the time, the money is irrelevant. So you've got to put in the money, you've got to put in the time. Then you've got to put in the effort. Because if you put in time and money, but you don't actually try when you're there, well, if you use that dating scenario... Your date's not going to be very interested in you, are they? You know? And then the last one is trust. You've got to trust that the method you're using is correct for you, that you actually understand it enough. So when you talk about being committed, it's do you have the resources to put the money into it? Do you have the time to be invested in it? Do you have the effort that you want to do it? And do you have the knowledge that you, means that you actually trust the methods. Because if you just trust it blindly, it's worth doing some reading. It's worth figuring out what you want to do. And obviously, these four are separately different because if you've got lots of money, but not much time and not much you know, effort that you're wanting to put in, then yeah, you can send your dog to a boarding centre who will do most of the work for you. Now, again then the bond is not great. There are some drawbacks to that, obviously, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its place. But if you don't have very much money, but you've got a lot of time and a lot of effort that you're willing to put in, and you've got a lot of uh, ability to learn, then you can do a lot of it on your own. You can study, you can enroll yourself in some of the free courses online, and you can do a lot yourself. So you've got to look at what kind of commitment you've got and what kind of resources you're going to need. Because it can be very time-consuming. It can be very pricey. Hey, if you go back to episode one of the podcast, you'll see that the resources I had to put in with Athos meant that I had to completely change my life. You know, so it's all dependent on what you're willing and able to do. So please take that into consideration before you take that big step. You've also got to look at things like what methodology are you using? So, for example, some training tools can be very expensive you know when people talk about so one, one thing that i use which a lot of people say well that's quite pricey is a dual clip harness you know that's not the cheapest thing in the world so if somebody says oh we can't afford that 
There's many other ways to do the training to get the same result. It's just that I use that one because it tends to be the easiest for people to grasp from a coaching standpoint. So you've got to communicate with the people that you're using as well so that they can help you reach the correct results with the resources that you have available. One thing I want to add on as well, um, which is pretty common in Singapore, is that dogs are expensive here, right? So a lot of people think that, I, you know what, I'll just adopt the dog and pay the adoption fees if there's one, which is like under 500 bucks. But most of the time, you end up spending more on adopting a stray dog in Singapore than you would if you just bought a ethically bred, purebred, like let's say Golden Retriever or whatever. Because stray dogs have so much fear and stress from, from being on the streets of Singapore. They, most of them, I would say, 95% of them require rehab or some form of behavioral adjustment training. So, and that's not cheap. Obedience training, sure, you can knock it out in, in two weeks and it'll be done, but that doesn't solve the root causes of their behavioral aggression, fear, stress, anxiety, or whatever it is. A lot of my friends who have seen Blue, have seen Ori, they're like, oh, you know what? They're really well behaved. They get along well and stuff like that. But that did not come easy. That came after months and months of working with them nonstop. And they suddenly, my friends think that, oh, you know what? I should adopt a dog as well. But I have advised against my friends adopting a dog because I know of their lifestyle, their willingness and what resources they have available because it's not fair to them and the dog as well. I mean, it also leads to something that's not really got anything to do with the topic of this podcast, but it's something that I very much always think about. And you'll see in some of my videos, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, adopt, don't shop. I mean, my three dogs are all adopted, but that's not always the case. You know, like uh, adopting a dog is awesome if you have the resources and the commitment to do it. But as you just said there, Jay, is that it's not for everybody. And uh, if your lifestyle is not suited to it, you should not be shamed for not doing it. If you have a family with three, four kids, all of whom are a little crazy, then getting a skittish dog that's scared of children isn't very fair on the kids or the dog. It's not difficult to understand where the big downfalls would be in bringing a dog who needs behavioural rehabilitation into a lifestyle which doesn't lend itself to that or into a family that don't have the commitment or the resources to do it. It's a very important point which I feel we need to try and get out of this political headspace of, no, no, this is a rescue culture or this is a, you know, kennel club culture no, no, we're all we're all animal lovers, we're all dog lovers. It's kind of the same with the whole cat rescue versus dog rescue stuff. If we all just love the animals, there shouldn't be as big a divide, there shouldn't be as big a, a clash in our goals because it should all be going the same way. Like what can we do to help these animals? What can we do to love these animals? Whether you buy your dog from an ethical breeder, because I do put my uh, foot down a little bit here, like as much as it's not fair on the individual dogs, when you buy from puppy mills, you're feeding into that industry. So although you might save that individual dog's life, by giving them money, another full litter of these pups are going to be born. So we're just feeding into the, the cruelty. But when it comes to ethical breeders or rescuing a dog, it's all good. It's all based on your ability, your resources, your commitment. And as much as I would always advise people, if you have the resources, if you have the commitment, please do adopt, please do rescue, because there's so many dogs that need it. But that doesn't mean that it's for everybody, you know? So... It all boils down to also what your goals are, right? So do you want your dog to be a family dog, a competition dog, a sports dog, or working dog, service dog, whatever? Apart from your goals, you have to see whether your dog is capable of doing something like that. You wouldn't adopt a fearful, stressed out dog 
and try to train them to be a service dog or working dog, would you? Because it's not fair to put that kind of pressure onto a dog who hasn't even learned to be integrated into our community yet. They don't know how to be a domestic dog. You know, and with that said, you can sometimes get rescue dogs that become working dogs or service dogs, but that's not the norm. It's about understanding what your particular situation is. Do you need to do rehabilitative behaviour therapy with your dog to just get them to be a good canine citizen and family dog? Don't expect them to then become, you know, a top-of-the-line guide dog. You know, these guys are guide dogs or service dogs. They're bred specifically for that. They go to specific training schools. They're selected. And that's very, very important that you understand that there's specialised trainers for these areas. So don't get drawn into the misconception that you can just take your border collie that you bought from a pet shop and expect that dog to be able to work an 18-hour day on a farm herding cattle. You know, that's a different requirement, a different requirement of training and breeding and all of that stuff. So basically, at the end of the day, I think we just need to understand that it's not just about the dog. It's also about the owner, the adopter, the handler, and about what they are able to do, what the dog's able to do, your understanding of the different training methodologies and choosing the one that you deem to be the most appropriate for you. And as much as, obviously, from listening to this podcast you can tell where both Jay and myself stand. Yes, I would love people to make sure that they read up about the most, you know, scientific-based training methodologies that are not just the most effective, but the most kind towards the dog. It's really down to your individual choice because you cannot be forced into doing something that you don't want to do. And with that said, I just want to remind everybody again, please feel free to comment on this episode, ask questions. It's, it's important to open up that dialogue, but also make a point of looking at the links in the show notes and doing a bit of reading and understanding about where all of this is coming from and understanding that it's not political, it's academic. It's about doing what's best for ourselves and our dogs. 